Hey, we are going to continue though now with chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Of course, starting in the middle of a book. Um, it's good to have kind of an awareness of what the first few chapters were. Starting in the middle of a chapter as well, it's good to get a kind of a background um, before moving forward with what we have. And so, um, as I've read the Bible, as I've learned and am learning to grow as a Christian, I have had times where I wondered if it had any application. Um, probably most Frequently in a journey through Leviticus, I may scratch my head a little more and think, what's this got to do with me mentality? But I've met many people who do really say, well, I don't, I don't know if the Bible's that relevant in our, in our modern culture with their technology and all these things. And I'm going to start this time by saying there's nothing new under the sun. And there's different opportunities and different activities. But what we're going to read about in Cor in Corinth, the city that this letter is named after, it, it was it happens today. Let me give you just some things on on the Corinthian culture, and you see, I, I believe it'll be easy to make this connection in in the commonality of our modern culture. The Corinthian culture was broad, meaning it was very diverse. It was intermixed in regards to um, morality and ethics, uh, how a person interpreted religion, you know, which would be seen as just that seeking after God, contemplating if there is a God, anything, quote, spiritual. It was just really broad in how they approached it. It was the same on sexuality. Sexuality was as, was as twisted as it is. I started to say diverse, but that's not accurate. It's twisted. It's perverse, actually. It was as perverse as what we're seeing in our culture today. So you have us this melting pot, this mixture in this seaport, this city of Corinth, of all these ideas and beliefs and thoughts coming together um, on one end of the spectrum of the, the swing of the pendulum. You know, some people believe that, you know, you, you can do whatever you please. You, you can do whatever you want. Feels good, do it. Because it's your body and you're spiritual. So if... Things are wrong and, you know, immoral. It's the body appetites, the, the, the sensual desires that they're doing it and driving it. And it, it's not really you. So, therefore, you're not accountable for what you do, which is really weird and, well, really common right now even, too. Now, the other side of this, this cultural pendulum would be over here where people believed that... Um, the, the, uh, what you do defines your spirituality. So in other words, everything about your righteousness revolves about around what you do. So you have to live a perfect life. You have, it's what we would call nowadays legalistic. You, 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 you just were very sterile, so to speak, very much um, uh, rigid, very disciplined, very, quite honestly, sadly, judgmental. Because you always looked down at what other people did and elevated what you did. So this is how the pendulum of culture would swing in that day, which we know is the same today. And in between all these opinions and philosophy and um, cultural confusion, something else was happening. People were getting saved. People were coming into a born-again relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. And so now as they're getting saved, they're, they're saying the same thing that we say. The same thing that you have asked to some degree or another. And the same thing that people will say in the days to come as they come into a, a, literally a born-again relationship. Now what do I do? I have a sense, a, a perception. I, I feel like a weight's been taken off my, my life. I feel like I, I have this new life. Uh, you tell me the Bible says that I'm born again. That's what we're holding on to, these promises. I have these promises, this perception, this new life. But what do I do? Do I still work for this, at the same place? Do I, well, how much can I be about life? What, do I, what can I keep doing? And, you know, and what do I need to stop doing? The culture there, the church there, or the, the people, the believers there, were asking questions like, should I stay married? Or should I not be married? Should I get a different job? How much of Corinth do I need to flush from my life? Which you're, you're asking the same thing. I don't know how, 
you know, how long, you know, some of you I'm aware of your, your journey with Jesus and, you know, that you've been Christians for a while. I can look at my own life, of course. I can remember, as you can, some things when you were first born again. Some of you are just sorting out. This is your first thought on how to process some of these things. And I want to encourage you because uh, the Bible tells us that, you know, we do have a participation, a part in this new life. We're brought into a relationship with Jesus Christ, relationship with God. But then we make decisions. And, and let's consider a passage as kind of a preparatory. It helps us to kind of get the mindset out of Ephesians chapter 5. We'll look at this and then we'll pray before we jump into the second half of 1 Corinthians. So in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning there in verse 15, we're instructed to see then that you walk circumspectly. Circumspectly speaks of, of carefully, um, speaks of an awareness of what's behind me and you know, what's in front of me. So see that you walk carefully, not as fools, but as wise. And this is to a church, to church in Ephesus, to believers even today. Hey, you know, kind of think about where you're going. Think about what you're doing. Think about how it's been. It goes on to tell us in verse 16 that redeeming the time because the days are evil. So in Ephesus, in Corinth, in contemporary culture, we can all conclude if we could sit in dialogue, the days are evil. I don't have any problem rationally reasoning and logically engaging with someone and I believe we would all we would come into the same conclusion. It's, it, there, there are darker days now, morally and ethically, than we've ever seen on the planet. There's always been darkness. But from a spiritual perspective, it really has been going downhill, so to speak. Is that true? You don't have to. Just, you just read the headlines and you're going to come to that conclusion. So, because the days are evil, what should we do? Well, it basically is conveying to you and me, because this is when you live, this is where you live, this is how it is where you live, cash in the minutes. Make the most of your time. Redeem the time. Realize the time is short. You don't have a lot in your life. You have a short life in view of eternity. So use it wisely. It goes on to tell us in that uh, same passage out of Ephesians 5 and verse 17, Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, because you can know it. You can know it. You can know personally God's will for your life in this season and this time. It may not come to you as a hunk of sagebrush on fire, a burning brush out in the desert. You may not have a Moses-like experience. But God does not withhold his will. He doesn't hide it and just tell you, good luck figuring it out. He actually teaches us and he will show us. And so he says, You'll be, don't be unwise, understand. Take hold of, seek out, grasp what the will of the Lord is with that. Let's pray. God, as we would approach this portion of Scripture, we know that you know our culture better than we do. Well, you even know us individually better than we know ourselves. And so, Lord, as we would approach it, may we be encouraged. Encouraged because you teach us. Encouraged because you comfort us. Encouraged because you know all things and you lead us and guide us, Lord Jesus. May we be aware of the days and times we live in, not out of fear or some form of judgment, but out of realization that we have opportunity for your light to be present within us and broadcast from us in some fashion. And so strengthen us, equip us for that, God. Teach us even now these simple things, these, truth, these things of truth that we need to take hold of. Use us as your spokesman, as your people in this world to present hope and life and truth. Fulfill, us, fulfill your work today, God. Teach us your will. We thank you, Jesus, for you're so good, you're precious and kind. Walk us through the word today, we would ask in your name. Amen. All right, I'd like to start and read through the entire portion we're going to cover. I'm going to restrain from doing that. Today, we're just going to catch it piece by piece in awareness of the time we have. So, chapter 7 is relational. People are born again. They're now having to figure out how to do life. 
So it's very practical. It's not a one-size-fits-all. Everyone do it this way, attached, legalistically encumbered or you know, held back. But rather, it's a, it's a response. In chapter 1, or I mean chapter 7, verse 1, we see that it's a conversation. The church in Corinth, where Paul spent about a year and a half at least, had communicated probably by letter to Paul, hey, it was awesome that you were here. We have some questions concerning this new life. And so what we see, according to verse 1 of chapter 7, he's saying, now concerning the things which you contacted me about. And chapter 7 is going to address some of those things. And we're not giving them in, we're not giving the Q&A. We're not giving it, we don't have it in outline form. But the content reveals some of the things that we can be aware of. Now, in 20, verse 25, he shifts from previously addressing marriage issues specifically. Now he's going to talk about marriage and those who are unmarried. Beginning in verse 25, now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord. Yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Okay, so verse 25, now concerning virgins, it's speaking of those unmarried. It's a cultural term. It was common in that day. It's not so uncommon in some parts of the world to continue to use this type of terminology. And so he's speaking of the unmarried. Now, it could be speaking of sons or daughters. We see uh, the gender reference here through this flow is going to be more towards uh, daughters, but it speaks of arranged marriages. You understand that, right? That a good portion of the world, even today, marriage is not by two individuals who make independent choices and pursue whatever they perceive to be uh, the person of their dreams, so to speak. That's kind of the American or the Western civilization way, right? I'm not, not being negative about it. I mean, that's just it's more like what we individually choose. But for uh, North America, Europe, I could go in other parts. That's the common but in other parts of the world, it's arranged marriages. So that situation, like we see here even in Corinth, it, back in that time, it was the responsibility of, of the parents to arrange a marriage, and it was primarily the father's responsibility. And so he had to think through, okay, how do I deal with this? We're going to come back to that in more detail, but I don't want to overlook something that was said here. Paul said, I have no, no commandment from the Lord, Yet he's then going to give it input. And some have uh, errantly and, and inconsistently determined that Paul shares his opinion at some times and he shares the Lord's message at some times. But what he's really conveying to you and I is that he's simply sharing that, that Jesus did not address the specific details in, in a teaching or instruction. God chose to bring those details to the church through Paul. And some have said, well, he's just given his opinion because, you know, he says that the Lord had no commandment. Well, the Lord didn't teach anything specifically on this. And, and it's interesting to see because God, this is so fascinating to me. He chose to, to deliver truth of eternity, really important stuff, we could call it. He chose to deliver it firsthand. All right. So he spoke to Moses, right? He just like lit the bush. Things flop, you know, got my Moses' attention. Powerful experience, amazing, direct from God to an individual. That individual, all Holy Ghost aglow, goes back to the people. They know something happened. Uh, he also chose to just write the, on a tablet. He just to, to hey, here, this is this is my word to you. We know there's other times he spoke through prophets. We know he actually appeared, came as a man, set aside his divine prerogatives, his, his place in heaven, so to speak, and occupied earth. So he come as a man and conveyed truth direct through him. Through Jesus spoke these words. And, and we, what's what we call the red letter stuff in our Bibles. So we know he did it that way. And we know he also spoke through people at various times, according to Hebrews chapter 1, that in various times, in various ways, he has spoke to humanity. But now through Jesus Christ. Where am I going with all this? The Bible, we're told, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. I mean, it's beneficial to, for reproof, for correction, for teaching. They're just beneficial. 
Well, which portions? Do you mean like the Gospel of Thomas? What about 3 Corinthians? What about all these other seemingly books? No, the ones we're talking about are the ones that made the cut. Genesis to Revelation, period. No additional revelation later. God preserved Genesis to Revelation. Why? I don't know. Ask him. But he, may, that, he just could, that's it right there. You know, some want to bring in these others, and you can look through your, you go through your Old Testament and New Testament. That's what he's preserved. That's what we have. And with that, he brought certain truths through, say, Corinthians, the letter that came, the, the mind of God, the heart of God, poured into the vessel called Paul, brought forth from his hand to humanity, we have God's word. So it just came through him. It wasn't so Paul would be idolized or somehow elevated. He just said, this is what God gives me to share to you. And God preserved it. So now we know it's his word. So he says, you know, that I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I find that very interesting. Notice this. Paul humbly acknowledges that God taught Paul to be trustworthy and humble. See what it says? That God had made him trustworthy. It's his personal relationship. We, as people, tend to notice the public expression, the obvious, outward, visible engagement. And we can measure someone's spirituality that way, we think. We cannot. Because Christianity is really easy to fake. You just got to figure out how it goes and flows and then just kind of dupe it, duplicate it. There's no power in it, but it's very persuasive. Paul was taught to be trustworthy privately and intimately that Jesus literally taught him. Paul had it all figured out. Remember, that's his life. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, trained right, done right, born right, taught right. Everything was right. And he was going to fix this problem called Christianity. And then he had an amazing donkey experience outside of Damascus and was blind. And now he come into this relationship with the living God. Instead of talking about him through religion, he's in personally engaged with Jesus. And then he begins to grow. And through these private things, and he wrestles with things. He disciplines his body. He struggles with reality. He, should I go here? Should I go there? He's working out, and he's getting the, the teaching, the, the depth, the roots to his spiritual relationship are personal and private. And it'll be expressed publicly. It'll be seen publicly. Why do I say that? Well, because there's a great need for this in the church. Not just to look and see what others do and copy that, but rather to be trustworthy, that God would make us trustworthy. It's a, it's a result of the relationship where we learn to trust him. In learning to trust him, we, we follow closer with him. And when we're following closer with him, people will see that we're, we're living differently. So then they're observing a change in the variation. Do you see how it fits? It's so easy for us and so common for us to try to copy what someone else is doing because we respect them. We revere them. We look to them. But that's got to be rooted and founded in a personal relationship, a daily prayer, a devotion to the word, a love for God. And then as you do or copy or learn, then you'll live it outright. You know, Paul did say, he instructed Timothy, you know, let your progress be evident to all. He said in another portion, as I follow the Lord, so follow me. So there is, okay, it's a, you should have a good example, Correct. Let's just, you see what I'm saying? Let's make sure that this is a relationship. He had a relationship with the living God himself. And that's what we see. And that's why he's sharing, I believe, so candidly as the Holy Spirit spoke to him. Moving on, we see in verse 27. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. So, once again, you have these questions come up. How do I work this out? If I'm born again, the Bible says it is. Paul, you're telling me that's what happened. I'm a new creation in Christ. Former things have passed away. All things have become new. So now I'm new. So can I just go find and can I just break the covenant? Kind of think of it this way. Does new life nullify old covenants relationally? So Paul comes into a relationship with Christ. His wife maybe does not. So am I loose? Am I set free? Because, hey, I'm new. 
So I'm a new creation, and I'm, I'm, I'm born again. I wouldn't be bound to those previous life obligations. And those are real questions. I've actually had, to, I've had people ask me those questions, um, very personal level. So my wife, Kim, and I, we were married before we were believers. We were not yet born again. We were in this world and of this world, and we had no concern for any other world. And so as we're sorting out life and, you know, living together and, you know, just kind of doing the American thing, we have kids, too, and then we're sorting other things out. And Kim, in this journey of life, she came to this, what I call the crossroads of conversion before I did. She came to where she was brought the truth of sin, of her need for forgiveness, of the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ by putting faith and trust in him. And, and she responded to that at, at that point, and she became a born-again Christian. I didn't want anything to do with it. It was not my deal. I have a good life to live. Why mess it up with religion? And that was my way of thinking. So, you know, I'm good. And so she just, you know, started growing spiritually, started going to church, started, you know, like looking into this stuff. I still wanted nothing to do it for almost a year. Well, in that time, there was teaching. You know, there was actually really weird teaching before we had the Internet. I don't know if you knew that. You know, it was, it was always, there's always been pockets of weird. Well, anyway, there was some even then that taught when you're born again and you have this new marriage, this new life, you can't let that old husband and his carnal ways and his secular thinking ruin your life and take you down spiritually and mess up your children. He is rejecting God. You need to get away from him. So there was this, this thought and this teaching. Thankfully, it wasn't strong. And even more thankfully, she didn't listen. But see, what, see what's happening? So it's the same thing that's happening here. There, do I look, am I free from this? Or do I stay true? What do I, what do, I do? And he's saying straightforward, just stay where you're at. New life brings instruction and life to old commitments. Yes, some relational things change. Yes, there's variation. But don't use this new life experience as a way to bail out on responsibilities. I don't even have time to get into all the terrible things I've heard taught from the pulpit about, you know, going. Anyway, I don't even go there. You get it. I got to, I got to, I got to like, uh, what did Mr. Miyagi say? You guys remember? Oh, focus to daniel son. Focus. That's, yeah, that's what I got to do here. Verse 28. Even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if an unmarried person, a virgin, marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I will spare you. So, know as we read through this, the, the theme and the thrust of this letter concerns serving God. The instruction says concern, is concerning how you would serve God. And Paul's and just saying very straightforward, it's really very practical. It, it's going to be more troublesome to try to serve when you're married than if you're single in this one sense. And so he's not in any way previously telling you know, people to leave their wife. He's not saying to, to bail on the covenant agreement you made. Verse 29, we say, this I say, brethren, the time is short so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they have none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. Uh, to tie it together and help see he's given a practical instruction. And he has a thought in the forefront of his mind. God's conveying to you and I the time is short. Now, you might question, as many have, and you may wonder, like, wait a minute. What do you mean by short? It's been 2,000 years. Does he not have a calendar? I mean, Paul said Jesus is coming back. It's going to happen quick. And it's been 2,000 years. Was he wrong? How can we reconcile this? If we jump to a conclusion, we usually end up kind of off base. But realize this. Yeah. The word 
short, and in, in that culture, was used different ways, but a very interesting way is when, when those on a ship, mariners, when they came into a harbor, the sails were shortened. They were rolled up in preparation for coming into the harbor. We get it, right? Because a longer sail, a greater mass, holds more wind, greater propulsion. So as you're coming in with caution, you deal with the wind. Um, some of you have tried loading a boat onto a trailer in strong winds, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. It, you have to do something to, to cut the sail, so to speak. Well, this was a term, it's just when you're coming into harbor, be prepared. The harbor is near, be ready. So that's kind of what, listen, the time is short. You know, it, you're, you're, you're getting close. Um, air travel, I can tell you that one. You, can, you, you get it. You, you've, if you've flown, you know this, this thing. You're on the plane. The time is short for takeoff, correct? When you hear them say, put your tray table up, put your seat back in the upright and locked position. Do you guys know that song? Some of you do? I'll give you a hint. Albuquerque by Weird Al. No, all right, fine, fine. <laughs> That's why you guys pray for me, because I know these things that are like, why would he even know that? Why would he even listen to that guy? I won't even get into that. But there's a point on a plane when you prepare for takeoff. The time is short here. You're going to lift off and go. And, and that's just the imagery. So we sometimes think, like, well, he said the time is short, but it's taken 2,000 years. Well, thank God he took 2,000 years, or you wouldn't even been born, nor would you be saved. So there's some blessings to it. We want to see uh, the time is short. You have 15, 20, 30, 50, 70, 90, 100, maybe total years of your life. That's a short perspective. That's a short amount of time in view of eternity. So the time is short. And what he's saying is like, you're in this world, but not of it. A time is short. Don't be encumbered. Don't be caught up. Notice verse 32. I want you to be without care. For he who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. So... Is that not true? When you're single, you have left to consider. You, have a, you don't have to weigh out as many different things. Care speaks of uh, uh, free from interference, um, free from anxiety, unencumbered. You're, I like to think of it this way. You're able to travel light on the journey. Uh, I travel pretty light as far as air travel. So you know if you travel light, you know what I'm talking about. I may have a carry-on, but I may just have one bag. And I've just chosen to do that. Why? Because it's easy to get around. It's easy to go. I don't wait at a carousel for my luggage to hopefully show up and not end up somewhere else. It's just easier. And so it's, it's kind of along those lines. When you're serving the Lord and there's just decisions you make for you, it's just easier. It's not better. It's just a way to be. I touched on it a couple of weeks ago, but I can't avoid it even here, it's okay to be unmarried. God says it's okay to be single. Some are actually gifted, gifted with that desire, that heart to be single. But sadly, you live in a culture, if you're single, that frequently pressures you to be complete. Excuse me? Yeah, yeah, I'm praying for you. Have you found the right somebody? Well, not you. I mean, it's like, I'm not, was I supposed to be looking? Did someone lose my somebody? What do you mean, have you found the right person? It's like, what are you talking about? You see the implication? It's like, well, but it'll be better. Yeah, there's some things about marriage that are awesome. I've been married 40 years, no regret. But there's some things that are, they're just different. You know, it's like, I'm a spontaneous person. As a single guy in my 20s, Hey Kim, let's uh, let's just hey, let's just jump in the truck and go up in the hills and pitch a tent and camp for a couple days. Okay, I'm like, okay, let's start the truck and go. It's like, well, no, I need to get this and this and that and this and those and these. Like, no, there's no store there. You don't need makeup. You don't need any. You just go. 
He's like, I'm going to Walmart. Let's go to Walmart. Oh, I got it anyhow, and maybe kind of, I'm like, you're going to Walmart dressed down. Grab the sweats, frump the hair, get in the car, let's go. There's no prep. But you know what I'm talking about. And it's not always hard. Sometimes it's the other way around. I'm getting ready. But is that practical? That's simple. It's serve the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. And if you want to be married and that's on your heart, that's, that's good. That's okay. If you're single and you're okay with that, then realize you have more liberty, more mobility. You can travel lighter. You know, you can go about things without a whole lot of other hindrances, if you would. It's just real straightforward. So he says in verse 34, moving along, there's a difference between a wife and an unmarried. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband, which is pretty simple, straightforward. You know, the unmarried daughter has different things to consider. In reality, the married woman has more relational responsibilities. He'll even reference that for the men as well. And so the married woman has more to maintain than the unmarried, more, more relational responsibilities to fulfill. It's pretty straightforward. It's sad that I have to, I, I mean, I love being able to just see it in the simplicity that is presented, but I have to make sure we establish this because so many have errantly taught through this portion of Scripture of chapter 7 and, and presented totally unbiblical ideas, implying that you, you it's more spiritual to be, uh, single and serve the Lord is more spiritual to leave your husband because he's not a believer. All this really stupid stuff. Just read the text. Is that a possibility? Keep it in the context. Is that maybe some some strength to all of us? I'm not really unveiling anything deep here, correct? It's transformative. It's essential. I'm just not bringing any silly ideas into it. It's just really straightforward. Hey, listen, just, you know, it's just... It's going to be more complicated if you choose to get married, but if you want to get married, get married and honor God in that marriage. And you just won't be doing many missionary work the way you would have if you were single. That's just that simple. So, verse 35, this is a key point to the passage, quite honestly. This I say for your own profit. Not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. This is the center point, the key to this portion of Scripture, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. And, and don't feel like, oh, I can't do it because of this relational status. can't do it because of this. No, just, just serve the Lord without distraction. Don't, don't bring more distractions upon yourself. Serve wholeheartedly. Distractions is not talking about relational obligations per se, but it's just things that would take your attention away from serving the Lord. It's, it's an element of um, half-hearted. You ever done something half-hearted where you're just like halfway into it? If we were, you know, polling or having you check out or make a mark, everyone would have to say yes. Yeah, I've done things half-hearted. Maybe you don't remember. But when your parents ask you to clean your room and you didn't want to, and you did it by pushing everything under the bed, hiding stuff in the closet, you know, burying stuff in a drawer... And they come in, and it's like, okay, whatever, I know what you did. And they're, they're probably going to be like, whatever. But half-heartedness hurts you, correct? Because when you go to get that toy, you don't know if it's under the bed. You don't know if it's in the closet. You don't know where it is because you just didn't really put your heart into the whole concept, what needed to be done. Half-heartedness spiritually is very damaging. It's a very painful spiritual condition to be half-hearted. It brings discouragement because you don't have a sense of accomplishment. It brings disappointment because you didn't fulfill what you know you needed to do. It even brings depression because all this weighs upon you. The Bible says, you know, anxiety in the heart of a man brings him down, causes depression. It literally, and I'm not talking about clinical. I'm just talking about that effect emotionally and, and logically. So half-heartedness is really painful. Think about this. Let me, let me run you over. Uh, we'll even bring it up on projection. Second Chronicles chapter 25. It was the time when there were various kings. And we're just told for today's study, just a glimpse of a man by the name of King Amaziah. Amaziah was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother was Jehoadan of Jerusalem. 
speaking of Amaziah, he did what's right in the sight of the Lord. All right, all right. Catch this next portion. But not with a loyal heart. Just half-heartedly. He, he wasn't really into it. He was just going through the motions. And in going through the motions, he found himself really in a mess, quite honestly. And so let's just be careful as we journey right now back to chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. I went to that text in Chronicles because we were at verse 35. And it was saying, you know, what is proper, you may serve the Lord without distraction without distraction don't be half-hearted wherever you are relationally wherever you are culturally serve the lord wholeheartedly some would say well i'm not into the whole serving jesus thing so you're a human although some may argue but you are human you have certain things that are automatic you you don't have to remind yourself to breathe right sort of happens. Your heart beats, which I think what they refer to as autonomic. Also within you is the desire to serve. It's just, just as present as the other, quote, automated, automatic. The question is, whom do we serve? How do we serve? How will that unfold? What will that look like? And so with this text, when he's teaching us, you know, he's speaking, serve the Lord without distraction. It's it just serve in a way that honors God. See, this whole thing about married or unmarried or whatever, it's not a one or the other. Serving God is like serve my spouse or serve God. Which one? One or the other. No, it, it's a matter of honoring God in all that you do. You're not attached. That's what the text is saying. I don't want to put a leash on you. You get the picture of like attaching and restraining. I don't want to put a leash on you. You're liberated by his love and you can serve him in all that you do. Serve him in the workplace. Serve him in an awkward situation. Serve him in a difficult conversation. You can still serve him. Consciously aware of his presence, for he never leaves you, nor does he forsake you. Now verse 36, a, a man thinks he is behaving properly, improperly toward his unmarried daughter. If she has passed the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let them marry. So this truth about serving God, this principle about living every aspect of your life with God, an awareness of God, you work things out. So the principle is true for every one of us. The, the application, how it's expressed, has a lot of variation. Because we're not attached to a law. We're not saying, this is how you do it. So we would prefer, many of us, most, well, I'd say all of us to some degree, to have it cut and dried. Just tell me what I have to do and I'll just decide whether I'm going to do it or not. But you don't get that. You get much better. God says, listen, you get to know me and I'll teach you how to walk with me. You'll learn my ways by learning how to, to, to hear my voice, to read my word. You'll learn this as you go along. And so what may be applied in one person's life may have a variation. That same truth varies in the application in another person's life. It parallels with maturity, agreed? When you're young and immature, you're applying a truth, but you're really not fully applying it as you do five years later when you have a greater understanding of that truth and you realize it encompasses more aspects of your life. Now you're applying it in a much deeper way. It doesn't mean you should have done it over here. It just means there is a variation. Verse 37. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin does well, or his unmarried daughter. So it's fine. It's okay. Do it that way. But notice it speaks of the heart now. Working it out. The previous verse mentioned about, you know, if he thinks he's doing the right thing, then do the right thing. So there's an element of working things through. We don't get, you know, Ten Commandments delivered email and, and you know, put on our doorstep that we just follow those exclusively. It's, it's personal. It's very intimate. It doesn't in any way deviate from the unity and the totality of Scripture. But we have this, this awareness that we need to be sure of and be confident that he speaks to the heart. Now, the heart 
is not the pump. It's not the cardio as we think of it medically, but it, it's the innermost part of us. And, and it's really what we want to see is it's, it's, it's where our values and priorities are really set. That that's the core. You, myself, the church in Corinth, every Christian, understand this. We wrestle with how to bring our, our will and our wants into alignment with our heart. Our heart isn't necessarily our will, what, what resides there. That's our, our priorities, our values. But we wrestle, this is, think about this, do we not wrestle with how to bring our will and our wants into alignment with our heart? Because our heart, that's, this is where, I, oh man, this is ultimately where I want to end up. This is how I want it to be. Oh, shiny thing. And, and so then we're, now we're, we, we, but I want to do this too. But I, gotta, I wrestle, can I do this? And still meet this? But, but I, I really would rather, oh man, it, you see what I'm saying? It's sad when we don't recognize the battle. It's even sad when we don't recognize our own personal weakness. You will not strengthen something that's not weak. But with weakness, you usually will say, I got to do something with this. If you can pout about it for a while, that's somewhat emotionally a release, but not really therapeutic, not, not really beneficial. But you can then just say, you know what, I just got to shore this up. I got to deal with this. And so then we realize, man, my, that what I want, and I'm saying it's okay because other people do it that way. Ultimately, it's just not lining up with my core value. Who I want. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. This doesn't seem to lead me that way. So we wrestle. We bring it back around and so determined in our heart, as you see the text saying, so determined in the heart. The man who does not arrange marriage for his daughter, does well. In regards to the context of serving and his daughter serving and honoring God, it's okay. You see what I'm saying? It's that sorting it out and working it through in verse 38. So he then who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. Once again, less encumbered and entangled. Now, as you've already caught, I'm sure, even if you were with us in the first portion of chapter 7, this is not a one-size-fits-all approach. So, oh, you're this, then everybody just does this. But rather, the truth is being brought forward, and now the application is being taught individually. We've seen that there's many variables, but one common theme, serve the Lord. Um, we'll go to an Old Testament example if you'll turn with me to um, Joshua chapter 24. In Joshua chapter 24, Joshua was a leader after Moses. He spent his life serving the Lord, and he's realizing, I'm at the end of my days. It's time to pass the baton, hand it off. And his example on this topic of serving the Lord is so, so critical, so essential, so liberating for us. If you would consider Joshua chapter 24, verse 14. As he addresses the people, he says, Now therefore, you know, revere, respect, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. So here they had culture. And they're saying, listen, you got to put it away. They still were carrying some of it. To put it away. Learn to let go of that and serve the Lord. He goes on to say in verse 15, If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served there on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You see, he determined in his heart, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to finish well. This is how we're going to deal to it. Now, it's not self-reliance. It's not just self-will. It's a relationship with God where he'd seen God's faithfulness. He was a leader that God used to bring the people into God's blessing in the promised land. He got to see amazing things. And he had a lot of struggles. He had some difficult days and some big battles that didn't go so well. But notice at the end of his life, he's still saying this. For me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Did you win every battle? I said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, was it always easy? I said, 
As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Your relationship with God is not based on your circumstantial victories. It's based on his faithfulness. It's based on who he is. We, gotta, we can do this. I'm going to take you back to chapter 7. We're going to jump over to verse 39. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she's at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. So he's saying, in, in regards to serving, and time is short, it'd be better off just to stay single. But it's not a commandment. It's not a requirement. Who is he talking about? A widow. Someone whose husband's passed away. She didn't kill him. It would be murder. But her husband had passed away. So now she's released. She's at liberty to remarry. But she may want to consider, is that really the best thing? I happen to know a widow who... Um, since her husband has passed away, she's wrestled with some loneliness and, and some ch challenges relationally, of course. But she's determined, I have, I know this is true. I have opportunity to, to serve differently. I, I can take people, I can drive them to Boise so they can make their doctor's appointments. I can bring them meals. I can do things with greater independence, so to speak, less restriction in this season of my life. I'm okay with that. And she gladly serves. And not that life's all super easy and smooth, but you see what I'm saying? She's like, this is, this is fine. This is, I, I, I can, I can, so I'm at liberty to remarry, but I'm just going to serve the Lord. I, it's one of my own personal relationships as far as just seeing her, and I've seen others as well, choose to live that life where they can serve the Lord and honor the Lord. So a widow is free to remarry if she desires. What's the one condition? which I find funny, in the Lord. <laughs> There's that reminder to Christians, if you're going to marry, don't become unequally yoked, even if you're old. Don't think, well, I'm going to just date, oh, we'll get around, well we'll, we'll, well, we'll marry, and then that other person will become a Christian. Hey, Pastor Dan, it happened for you. No, we were both immoral. We were both un unrepentant, unregenerate. And God in his grace saved him and saved myself. I would never advise, hey, date, marry, and just wait till God saves that other person. Because you and I both know the divorce rate's too high. The salvation is not based on a relational commitment, a binding of a covenant. You see? So I just want to encourage you, just realize, hey, know who you are in the Lord. Make that your priority. Concerning serving the Lord, be free from interference and recognize the advantages. I've titled this series, God's Invitation to Live and Love at a Higher Level. And I believe that's a need right now in my life. I'm absolutely confident it's a need in your life. I've yet to meet a person who can say truthfully, dude, I'm tapped out. I've nailed this love thing. I've got it down. I'm living at a high level. I'm loving at a high level. Jesus checks in with me, man. No, one, no one's going to ever be, I hope, that pompous. So we all know deep down, yes, I know, God, I want to live and love at a higher level. And I believe it just, it's such a beautiful thing to just go straight, simple, move forward. Let's close out considering the last portion of this uh, particular letter. And as the worship team is going to come up and we're going to prepare our hearts for communion. But in 1 Corinthians 15... We're told in verse 57, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Did you catch that? Steadfast, immovable, always abounding, determined. But there's something else at the start of that that's so important. My beloved brethren, that we are loved of God, we are loved by God, and we have the love of God to extend in our love to other people. Will you stand with me? <clears throat> and we will sing a song of worship. <clears throat> we'll pray. <clears throat>
we placed uh, what we call the communion elements on either side of the stage and in the back. But understand, communion is for a born-again Christian. Jesus set that framework and, and made that clear when he said, as often as you do this, speaking of communion, do it in remembrance of me. And what that means is you have a relationship with him, you have an engagement, you have a, a, a tie to him, so to speak. So you have something to remember. And so for you as a Christian, this is not where you say, okay, am I getting everything? Have I got it together? Am I doing right? No, he's like, God, I just know you've saved me and through your grace. And I encourage you to take communion, even if you're in a point of struggle and a challenge. Let him finish his work in your life. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, I don't know what you're waiting for. The world ain't going to get better. You ain't going to be more aware of your sin than you are right now. You know you need it. You know you're not right with God. You know that there's things that nobody knows about you, and even your closest friends don't know about you. You know you need God's forgiveness. God offers that forgiveness. He offers you know, to you new life to be born again. And I'll pray with you right now, and, and, and we're going to go into a song of worship, but um, God is so good. God, as we stand here right now, I just pray for anyone who just hasn't taken that step of faith. I just thank you, God, that you're faithful to them. You're teaching them. Even today, you've stirred in their heart and mind to realize they, they need your forgiveness, God. They don't need religion. They don't need a lot of rules. They need new life from the living God. If you're that person, you would just simply agree with God Agree by saying, God, I know I've done wrong. I know I'm guilty of things that I should have never done. And, and I have to pay the price unless somebody pays it for me. And I guess your word's pretty clear that you offered to pay that price of sin, rejection. So I, I would put my trust in you, Jesus. I want to believe, I do believe to begin that you are God. You came as a man. You lived a sinless life. You give your life as a penalty, as a payment for the sins of humanity. And you rose from the dead, conquering death and hell. So I put my faith in you, and I really don't even know how to do that, much more than this first step. But I would ask you now to teach me how to live. Show me this new life you speak about. Help me to understand the forgiveness you've given me through putting my faith in you. Thank you, God, for what you'll do. And that would be our conversation for all of us, God. Thank you, God, for what you'll do as we recognize your body and blood which was given for us. Prepare our hearts as we sing this song. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.